The following episode of the 9pm edict was recorded live in the suburbs of Sydney, while it was raining heavily. You will hear applause, laughter, and rain. It also contains strong language. Saturday, the 4th of June, 2016. Uh, Well, more or less we learn the proper position to assume in contemporary media. I bow to my journalistic overlord. And we give you discussion that's best described as, uh, oh, well, how can we put it? Just a steaming turd. Just a, just a steaming turd. This is the 9pm Edicts Public House Forum number three. And welcome to the Hurstville Ritz Hotel in Hurstville for the 9pm Edicts Public House Forum number three. We have a stellar panel, a, no, an intergalactic panel here. Uh, may I introduce them from left to right, star of television and television and occasional written words, Mark Humphreys. Hello, listeners. From... The drawing land of cartoons, cartoonist extraordinaire, Kathy Wilcox. How'd you do, everybody? From somewhere out on the internet where people don't like him, Paul Warbank. <laughs> Good evening to the interwebs. <laughs> and last but not least, journalist Margot Saddle, who you will know from Crikey, from her book The Battle for Benelong and many other places. Hello, world. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I think we need to start with a, a simple question. Mark Humphreys, is satire dead? <laughs> now, what makes you think that still? What's, uh, what is it, the Trump phenomenon? Is that oh, what you're talking about? Oh, well played. You're throwing it straight back to me, and I haven't <laughs> prepared for that. I think, yes, the, the, the political landscape has become so ludicrous over uh, recent months, shall we say, perhaps it's a couple of years, that how can you satirise Donald Trump? How can you satirise... Uh, in the Australian election campaign, well, basically, fuck up after fuck up. (laughs) Well, I mean, to answer your question generally, I think no, but I think some people like Trump are going out of their way to try and kill it for us. I think, yes, inevitably, I don't know what you do with Trump, and I'm glad that I don't have to cover him. So satire is dead, but you weren't the one who killed it. Is no, that well, what you're I think, saying? I, just, I think that because there, there, there are people on, who would disagree with that. On a case by case basis, satire is generally speaking alive, <laughs> and then you reach someone like Trump, and it's rest in peace. So that's that's my general philosophy on that. I think, however, although satire dies in certain areas, it props up it, it crops up in others. So I'm a big fan of I don't know if any of you are familiar with Clickhole. Uh, but this is something... That click just, hole is glorious. Please explain Yeah, so this hole. is basically something which satirises uh, social media and the, and the buzzfeedification of, of media. And so it has, it'll have things like quizzes, like quiz, you know, uh, which lion from the lion, the witch in the wardrobe are you? Or uh, Mandy Patinkin is sleeping, share if you agree. Like that sort of, that, that, the banality of the language that we're dealing with. So I think satire is, is taking on new forms in various areas, but some in, in certain uh, areas of, uh, of politics, uh, it's, uh, it's dead and buried. Kathy Wilcox, satire is your game as well, but in pictures. How yes. has it changed? Well, it's, it's for a while there it went dormant. It actually it had a period of, of um, I would say, about six to eight weeks of actually going to sleep when, um, when Malcolm Turnbull replaced Tony Abbott. And um, and we cartoonists went into a kind of mourning period where where we just we, you know we'd lost all all sense all meaning you know no 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 longer an idea of what the point of our existence was because um, we had been so generously provided with material for satire for for such a long time and that you know goes back to well before Tony Abbott even became prime minister so um, so we were bereft we were sort of having to have you know. Cartoonist Anonymous kind of meetings where we'd stand up and say, "My name's Kathy, and I, I haven't drawn Tony Abbott for four weeks now," and um, you know, trying to deal with drying out. But um, thank goodness, uh, gradually the honeymoon the honeymoon mode was over, and and fuck ups started to happen. Am I allowed to say that word on this um, well, on I, this I program? Said it just before, right? I? Okay. Turnbull started to fuck up, and um, and 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 it was kind of like, oh, thank God for that. Back to business, and we could we could get on with it. So, but what I would do, I don't know, to put it in the context of, of Trump, 
I think that, you know, there's obviously a role for satire in dealing with, with difficult times, with, with bad thing, bad times. We managed to sort of turn that, those, those um, periods of crisis around so that we can see the funny side of them. But I think perhaps, you know, Donald Trump would be like being in the forest and having the grizzly bear actually about to uh, bite your head off. And at that point, you might possibly lose your sense of humour because your, your, your instinct to want to survive at that point might be stronger than, than that to make a funny joke at the bear. I, I saw him tweet something or say something at a conference or in the media uh, sometime this weekend effectively that he has a very even temperament and he's very sweet tempered yeah 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 he's got a very good temper he's a good tempered person believe me the sweetest temper believe me believe me believe me I love Mexicans and um, that's why I want the Mexican judge on the trial of my university to be um, you know to be taken off the job and all that sort of thing no but you could I don't know you could get if you could get a word in about him, but he, as soon as he started to say, "Believe me, I love satirists," I would be running for cover. Really. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I will come back to you in a second, Kathy. I'll make sure everyone gets some words in first before we we sort of have an all-in wrestling match, verbally speaking. Paul Wallbank, you're more a uh, a casual viewer of politics than a. Uh, a sort of hands-in commentator on it. How have you been coping so far? Well, having spent uh, most of the last month in Silicon Valley, it's been really interesting with this Trump stuff that uh, all of a sudden you're seeing the whole Silicon Valley thing becoming a, becoming a really good um, object for satire there. And on top of that, watching them just in the last 48 hours really tying themselves up in knots with Peter Thiel, that whole libertarian thing of them getting involved with Donald Trump, which I think they're making a big mistake there with uh, Donald, because he's not a libertarian. He's a populist, and there's a big difference. So um, there's there's lots of scope for... Um, for sending up Silicon Valley, which, of course, we've got one program doing, but uh, watching these guys m- mixing it all up, yeah, there's uh, some interesting material there. Now, that, that uh, you can hear in the background very quietly, I hope, for you is one of the buses going past here at Hurstville. You I was ex- watching you fiddling with the knobs there, which was really interesting. Well, yeah, the central <laughs> part of this program is me fiddling with the knobs. <laughs> you could actually just do do a um, a live stream of that, couldn't you? Really, you know, going that could for be... ages. Yes, yeah. something like that. Margot, we're neglecting you. Terribly sorry about that. You have had the pleasure of watching politicians at a very close range and going to uh, events where they're very much. Uh, well, the red light is not on, shall I say? What are your observations of this uh, election campaign so far? I guess my overall feeling is that it's so boring and so tedious. I mean, every single person you speak to on the street, in the grocery store, you know, in the Canberra Gallery says it's an eight-week campaign, it's too long, we're bored witless. So if anything pops up, you know, a rat, a lizard, (laughs) you know, an elephant on the internet, people have become obsessed with animals, absolutely obsessed with animals. And so... I'm hoping that the next four weeks will be someone trying to thrust an exotic animal under the neck, of, under the nose of some politician. This is my challenge to the interweb. Well, I mean, we've got Barnaby Joyce and the dogs, yeah. Johnny Depp's dogs, and yes. uh, I've forgotten his now somewhat bruised girlfriend's Amber Heard. name, Amber well, Heard. Yes, you're talking about Pistol and Boo. But yes. closer to home, in fact, his nemesis, um, Tony Windsor, has a dog, a border collie, that's tweeting on its own account. And oh, so right. I'm following the Twitter feed of Tony Windsor's dog. What's and it's it called? Gr- Mac. Mac, Mac, the Border Collie. And right. it's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right, OK. That's I'm the not kind quite of insight sure we need, where to I go think. with that. Yeah. But um, I, I might come back to uh, this question of politicians uh, behind the scenes. Uh, before we go on to uh, lighter matters, I want to come back to you, Cathy, because one of your recent cartoons, I think is one of the most powerful cartoons I've seen in the Australian media uh, in in quite a long time. It's very easy to describe. It shows an asylum seeker bursting into flames with just the simple caption not drowning. Where was your head when you were preparing that? Well, my head was was seeing that event of Omid, the Iranian from who was on Nauru, who, as everything that I read, because I like to read stuff first, everything I read was saying, well, he's actually been assessed 
um, as a refugee. He's not an asylum seeker. Uh, and um, But that he had done this shocking thing of, of self-immolating. And there was an image, as sometimes there is, and I'm not actually a big TV watcher or a big sort of follower of the uh, needing the visuals of things. I do a lot more reading than I do looking of the pictures. But, but when you see a picture of a man on fire... Um, it's such a shocking thing. It's so it's so viscerally shocking. I mean, any you know, any time to see somebody being being hurt, being injured, uh, it, it does something to us at a at a deep level. And I was so so sort of horrified and and shocked at that visual that I thought, how can I bring that the strength of that moment um, in a cartoon, and and how can I do it in such a way that I'm not kind of uh, clouding the point with words. So I actually did have a much longer caption at the top, which thanks to the, um, the, the dis- a little sort of overnight discussion with my editor, we sort of had a few exchanges of emails and the editor was questioning my, my caption because my caption was much more pointedly um, blaming the government policy, asylum seeker policy for, for this particular outcome and my editor was saying you can't blame it as directly as that, it just, you just can't do that and I was saying but this is a consequence of these policies he's saying I know but you just can't say it like that <laughs> so <clears throat> thank heavens I have, I have a marvellous little dog that, um, that Margot knows well called Tilly and Tilly provides me with a great deal of my thinking time so I went with this little conundrum and knowing that I had a couple more hours to work on this cartoon I took Tilly for a walk and I sort of turned it over and thought okay so how else can I say it and and just the simple form of words of just saying okay what do I want to, what do I really want to show here what I want to show here is as a consequence of the of the so-called policy to stop people drowning at sea we have a person setting on setting themselves on fire so not drowning here's a person not drowning and that's and that was it um, I think it's more powerful because absolutely, of that simplicity I'm, I'm, I'm extremely and it doesn't happen often that I have these exchanges with the editor and I was really grateful for the editor too because because our back and forth was not you know he was not sort of being dictatorial he was very much saying it's not quite right as it is can you think about it some more and so so he was really leaving it me it, to me to solve and um and I'm really glad that he, that he questioned it because you know sometimes you, you can't see when you're doing the thing when you're too close to it or you're too sort of passionate about it and having that little that little respite and that thought about it um it helped to distill the idea so I was you know lucky for that and I was you know frankly amazed at how how well that went, or how how well uh, repeated it was. It was very, you know, very much responded to, and you know, I've, I've had people who want prints of it and, and so on, or to, to donate money to the cause. So that's what I'm actually get doing is getting getting some prints made so that um, so that some money can t- can flow to asylum seeker groups to help with that. Well, uh, Kathy, I think uh, if you're considering which cartoon to put in for the Walkley next year. That one's got to be on your short list uh, because of the feedback. Mark Humphreys, you have been working on Satire for the Feed on SBS2 uh, in this campaign. Were you... Yes, the previous campaign was when the roast was on air too, wasn't it? That's right. It's, it's my, that's my time to shine. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I work for about six weeks and then I fade back into obscurity. So yeah, it's a bit like I'll see you in 2019, Green, Josie. But better jokes. Yeah, that, oh man. We, yeah. Um, yes. how, is, how has that changed between... I mean, obviously it's a different kind of program, but how has your view of politics changed in the three years since the last election? Well, I think, I think the 2013 election was defined to a certain extent by, uh, well, the Abbott factor, obviously, but Clive, Clive Palmer was a big part of it and was a real uh, comedic gift and, uh, and was certainly a gift for the first year or so of the, of the Abbott government. And I think now everyone's, you know, completely tired of him. So I think there's less of that sort of excitement of the... I mean, because there were so many crazy candidates in that election that ultimately, you know, were elected. Uh, whereas I feel like we don't quite have as many... I mean, don't get me, don't get me wrong, we've got Pauline Hanson um, this time round, but there are few, there's, fewer, there's a little less craziness. So I guess the focus this time more is on the, is on, is on the major parties and... Uh, yeah, and I'll be interested to see how things pan out with uh, the Senate now that the new, uh, you know, the the, the the 
the makeup of the Senate will potentially change with the rules that have uh, changed there. Margot, you, as I, I said in the introduction, have had the pleasure, if that's the right word, of, of seeing behind the curtain a little. Was it last week you were down at Sailor Tie in the rocks where Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin were was, at a... It was, it was last was weekend, a, yes. Yeah, was that a fundraiser or a... No, it was during the um, Sydney Writers' Festival um, and MUP, the publishing house... has a, uh, Melbourne University Press. Uh, ...has a dinner every year and invites their authors, and I'm a former author of theirs, and... Um, journalists and a few um, just, you know, people who want to come and have a free meal, basically. Yeah. <laughs> now, that, that's a, a group of people who will include some political movers and shakers. Tony Abbott was there. How much of a sense did you have of people going, yeah, we want Tony back, as opposed to, dear Mr Abbott, can you please just go away? <laughs> well, it was, it was... That's a good question. I mean, journalists are not traditionally great supporters of conservative politicians and there were a lot of journalists there a lot of abc and fairfax journalists there oh, so communists pretty much yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's right um and i thought it was curious that peter credlin was set we were set there were places to sit I was so lucky in that I got to sit next to... Um, I got to sit opposite Mark Stefano, who will be ruling us all in the field of journalism in about five minutes, you know. I bow to my journalistic overlord. That's, that's Mark Stefano and the BuzzFeed crew. Um, and um, Gillian Triggs was sat next to Peter Credlin, and I thought that was interesting. And luckily she was in my eye line. And as I'm a trained lifelong eavesdropper and snooper um i'm able to carry on the conversation with the person next to me but actually focusing i have a kind of bipolar hearing wow that's like like um, being able to do continuous reading isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> continuous listening i like that exactly and having grown up with one partially deaf parent i'm a good lip reader um, and so I was lip-reading their conversation and Gillian Triggs was quite possibly the most controlled, the most polite, the most ladylike, the most professional person I've ever seen in my life. Now, for people who are going, who is Gillian Triggs again? She was the Human Rights Commissioner that the government effectively tried, well, to get rid of. Yes. And they, they couldn't sack her directly because she's a... Well, she's a commissioner. She's yes. a stat- statutory officer of... of well, of the government, not of the parliament. They can't yes. actually sack her unless, as the tradition goes, you know, she murders a nun in the corridor <laughs> and someone sees it. Yes. Um, that's not quite how the joke usually goes, but it's Saturday afternoon. I was amazed at how level-headed she was through that entire process when the Attorney-General is bad-mouthing her in Senate estimates when she's sitting right next to him. Well, um, just after that happened, I went to the New South Wales Council of Civil Liberties dinner, another hotbed of mad, crazy, fun people. It's always a huge drinking night, too. You've got a whole lot of libertarians there. And it's always held... Do they do everything because they can? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not only that, they did it all in the 1950s, you know, and have been doing it ever since. And it's always a wild night. One of my faves. Is anyone there under about... Fifty? No, God, 60? no. No, people are starting to bring their children <laughs> and telling them to behave. Exactly. I, I actually know. Uh, he grew up in California. His parents were hippies. They gave him the name Jade, so that tells you where we're coming from already. He became a stockbroker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He just rebelled against this hippiedom. Yeah, yeah. No, well, no, was it? Look, and last time, last time I went, actually, I got so drunk, I made my husband buy a lunch with Alex Greenwich, who's like the who's like the member for. He's very charismatic. I met him once. I got lost in his eyes for a second. Remembered, I love my wife, but it was a moment there. Though, yeah. If you meet him, it's worth it. I would pay top dollar for it. Would you pay two thousand dollars to have lunch with him? Extremely charismatic. <laughs> <laughs> Would you turn gay for him? 
extremely charismatic. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be interested in buying the right to have lunch with him from someone else? Are, are you offering me a lower <laughs> price now? Like, was was two thousand now? Now seven hundred? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But Julian Trick, sorry, Julian Trick spoke at that, and I cornered her afterwards and said, so Gillian, you've never met me, we're total strangers but just tell me, how's it all going? And she said, it's fine. And I said, are you worried about what's happening? She said, she's like, she's like the Queen. She just said, no, why would I be worried? <laughs> and I said, are you, you know, like, are you feeling tempted to leave, to just get away from all of this? And she said, in this kind of, the lady's not for turning. No, why would I? <laughs> And that is the kind of person we need as a human rights commissioner or in yes. that kind of role. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a number of concerns uh, there, Margot. One of my concerns is deconstructed coffee. Now, I don't know whether you've seen this story, but in Melbourne recently, and let's, let's name names. What is the name I, of this cafe? I once cafe? deconstructed some coffee all the way down the front of my blouse. It was terrible. Well, uh, exactly. This is the point. That coffee was constructed and then you deconstructed it. But for those who haven't seen... I won't turn the computer around because I'm, I'm actually using it to record the podcast. But, but someone ordered a coffee and was delivered a piece of wood on which were three Pyrex jars, one containing milk, one containing hot water, one containing the shot of coffee and a spoon. And they were told this is a deconstructed coffee. Otherwise known as make it your fucking self. (laughs) But uh, Jamila Rizvi, who is a writer, shared this, um, this photograph on Facebook and said, I wanted a coffee, not a science experiment. This isn't a deconstructed coffee because you never fucking well constructed it in the first place. Uh, her post, uh, I assume her, Jamila is a female name, isn't it? Yes, I think yes. so. Yes. Okay, uh, apologies if it's not. Um, but within 48 hours, this post on Facebook received 21,000 likes has been viewed more than 2 million times in the first two days. Does anyone disagree? Does anyone actually I, think? I do. I'm, I may be channeling my inner hipster here, but um, I like the idea of being able to mix my own coffee. You can do that at home, mate. Yeah, but occasionally I have to leave the house. It's, uh, yeah, which is why I'm here. <laughs> so you actually think it's acceptable to ask for a coffee and get pieces? Yeah. I mean, uh, except I are, wouldn't pay six bucks for about, it. But, what about tea? I mean, if you get tea yeah. in, a, yes. in a cafe, they bring you the pot of water. Sometimes the tea is separate. The sometimes little, the tea the, bag is separate. Sometimes yeah. the tea bag is separate. Sometimes there's a little, and there's a little jug of milk, and sometimes there's an extra pot of hot water. Did and sometimes a think, slice of lemon too. There may even be that, and you know, an option of some sugar. Now, nobody ever called that deconstructed tea. Well, that's they a, call yeah. that. They call that serving you tea à votre à votre goût or whatever. You know, à to votre your, to your à, à votre préférence. I don't know. Deciding, you know, how you like to have it, and there is there is the odd time. Not that I've ever gone to a coffee where they've served me my tea on a plank. Well, I mean, where does? Hang on, let's be serious. Where does this end? I mean, if you ask for a Caesar salad, do they bring you a lettuce and a knife, a can of anchovies, some bread, and a toaster? Have you never been asked if you want your dressing on the side, sir? I dress to the left. You're right. So you know, sometimes. (laughs) That's and not what you meant, is it? No, no, no. You buy the, you get the salad, and they ask you if you like your dressing on the side or if you want it already on top of it. So, so that if you, no, if, no, if you're insane. American and on some on some weird diet, for, if you ask for a steak and chips, they don't bring you a bag full of potatoes and a cow. Still, just let it fail. Yeah. Just, just, <laughs> yeah. just, like, if it doesn't I'm work, it'll fail. Margot's point with animals here: that you order a um, this boutique coffee, and you give them the civet cat. The civet? Yeah, the civet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I drank that. Right. Oh, yes. I drank that. This is the coffee that has to pass through, shall we put it politely, the, a mongoose. Di- the yeah. digestive tract yeah. of a mongoose. <laughs> yes. Before you drink your coffee. Yeah. I've had it in Bali. It's not worth it. Well, thank you for that. That's the kind of tip you get from listening to the 9pm Edicts Public House Forum. We'll just leave those chat. We'll be back after the break. <laughs> Oh, 
Before we go any further, two quick housekeeping items. Item one, the next episode of this podcast will be appearing on Tuesday, the 21st of June, to coincide with the solstice. That's around two weeks away. Housekeeping item number two is that uh, there will be some new ways of contributing to this podcast, and I mean in a past-the-plate sense, with the new financial year from the 1st of July. Until then, don't go to where you've been going before. Go to the one-off tip contribution page thing at my website at stillgerian.com slash tip and chuck a few dollars into the jar. It'll be much appreciated. And now, back to the action. to the 9pm Edict Public House Forum number three, recorded live at the Hurstville Ritz Hotel in Hurstville. And uh, it has reached that point in the program where it is elephant stamp time. And as has become a tradition uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Public House Forum versions of this podcast, we will get the audience to make the elephant stamp noise. So just so everyone is aware of what it sounds like... <laughs> Okay, hear that? Trumpeting followed by stamping. So, audience, it's now your turn. I wish I'd videoed that. (laughs) Okay, that was all a bit shit. I thought it was a deconstructed elephant. That was was a deconstructed sounds really messy. <laughs> we will count you in three, two, one, and you go on zero, not on one. Okay. Right. You're all clear on that? Yes. Say yes. yes. Right. Okay. Wait for the bus to go past. And, oh, wait for the second bus to go past. Three, two, one. Well, that'll fucking have to do. It's elephant stamp time each episode of this podcast. Uh, We give out elephant stamps of approval to people who have been exceptional in the category of thinking. Obviously, that's meant sarcastically for those of you who are a little slow at keeping uh, track of these things. Uh, Now, I have asked all of our panellists to prepare prepare a nomination for the elephant stamp. It's got to be Rowan Dean, right? Like, I mean, have you seen this guy this week? Uh, if you're not familiar with Rowan Dean, editor of The Spectator, Magazine Australia, uh, pops up regularly on Bolt where they can laugh at each other's jokes, shit jokes, by the way. Uh, he had a, a column in the Fin Review this week which was uh, just a steaming turd. Just a, just a steaming turd. And uh, it, was, it was sort of about who are the biggest whingers in, uh, in, in Australian uh, public life. And out of the, uh, I can't remember how many there were now, seven or eight, three of them were Indigenous. One was Waleed Ali. It was filled with puns. It was like a poor man's Kathy Lett. And Kathy Lett is a poor man's anything, just generally. Sorry, I've gone off on a tangent there about Kathy Lett's puns. But um, the, so things like Adam Goods was now Adam Bads. And Stan Grant was Stan, don't take me for granted. Like, and you couldn't even get these jokes wow. into a high school newsletter. No, that's the thing. Like, regardless of how offensive it was, it was just it was it was shit comedy. It was shit comedy. <laughs> all right, and I should know. Um, and uh, so there was that. And then he was on Bolt this week as well. And I was the, one of the three people that watched it. And uh, they were talking about Mark Scott being appointed as the new. Uh, what's the, his new role with the educator? General Education. Secretary. That's it. Secretary to the Director General. And uh, and Rowan's remark was uh, that uh, you should, uh, if you're in New South Wales, you should you should not send your children to public schools in New South Wales because uh, Mark Scott, of course, will ensure that Zaki Maller is your teacher and uh, telling you about how you can join ISIS. I mean, it was just. You might know where to get some decent weed. <laughs> it was. It was just. That, I mean, this was the tree. <laughs> I'm not getting involved. I'm, I, I don't know why. No, no, no. It's not defamatory. It's, 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 it's acknowledging the fact that he's a man of the world. 
and and is good at research. Okay. All right. Well, I think I've covered myself. Okay. So anyway, that's the that's the level of discourse we're talking about with Rowan Dean. He's one of those great mysteries in Australian life of someone who manages to fail upwards and uh, you know consistently finds paid work. Um, so uh, he's just a, he's just a mystery to me. So he gets uh, he gets an elephant stamp from me. Would you like to tell us what you really think? <laughs> too much. Sorry. That's, look, I think that's an excellent suggestion. I'll now bounce down to the other end of the panel. Margot, did you have a chance to think about this? Um, I've become totally obsessed with the audio of Sarah Hansen Young trying to explain the superannuation changes on Adelaide Radio. And I, I can commend it all to you. It is the funniest 18 minutes of your life. 18 minutes? It is 18 wow. of the most excruciating minutes where some Adelaide radio jock says to her, well, you know, what about this transition to requi- uh, you know, retirement bizzo? Because everyone, now that Julie Bishop has opened the door, everybody is now trying to catch people out on it. And... Sarah says, Sarah just repeats the question for about five minutes and then she says something about superannuation, then she says something about tax credits and finally at the 17th minute her chief of staff is forced to text her live on radio, (laughs) live on radio with a text explanation of the superannuation changes and she reads it out on the radio from her chief of staff. It's hilarious. Look, I I was going to say, yeah, we'll just drop it into the podcast at this point, but clearly no, this needs to be savoured in its fullness. I loved it. We will have a link on the podcast website. Thank you, Margaret. That is gorgeous. Paul Wallbank. Mine, and I might be a little bit behind the curve on this, but I'd like to give a big <laughs> shout-out. <laughs> you behind the curve? Good yeah, heavens. That's, that's right, surprise, hey. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to give a big shout-out to the editor or whoever it was at the Daily Telegraph that thought that endorsing Anthony Albanese was a good idea in the inner west. I mean, I, where does this guy live? Mossman um, or something? I, mean, well, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, for those who, who aren't fully across this... The Daily Telegraph has been Tony Abbott's cheer squad forever, basically. And they clearly hate Malcolm Turnbull, but they hate the Greens even more. Mm. And in the seat of Grangler, which is... Oh, yes, Bargo's waved her hand. I used to be in Grangler too, and some of our audience... Oh, there's plenty of... Gee, this is a surprise. This is shocking me. We are shocked that there are inner West Labor and Greens voters in the audience for this. I will disclaim at this stage still that I live in Tony Abbott's electorate. Yeah, well, you know, we've got to have balance, mate. Um, So... With this frightening prospect of the Greens maybe winning the seat of Grangler, the Daily Telegraph has come out in support of the Labor candidate and sitting Labor member, Anthony Albanese. It's wonderful. It is, and um, it's great because they've demonised him in the past too, so they hate him as well. They just don't hate him as much as the Greens. But... uh, Whoever thought that this was a good idea has never set foot in Newtown or Murrayville. I mean, it's just, just beautiful. This is somebody who, I, I guess, was at the Balmoral Beach Club on a Sunday morning and thought, this is a good idea. It, um, <laughs> so that's my big shout-out, the big elephant stamp. No, I, I think that's excellent. Uh, the, the Daily Telegraph has done some remarkable efforts in the category of thinking over the years, and, and this is an excellent one. Kathy Wilcox. Yes. Well, isn't Lyle Shelton an excellent human being? <laughs> the director or the general manager of the Australian, Australian Christian, Christian Lobby. Lobby. And he's been helping helping us understand what's wrong with with um, allowing people to be to be gay or trans or you know lesbian or whatever or whatever they whatever they might have been caused to be because they caught it at school by some, you know, Marxist education program where they were normal, normal, happy, healthy little boys and girls until some, some, somebody got in their ear and told them that they were wrong. Anyway, Lyle has been speaking out about that. <clears throat> and not only that, but he's, he's gone the full Godwin and, um, and suggested that, that this, is, this is creeping Nazism 
Yes. The fact that uh, that this yes, is yes because the Nazis the were guardians. so tolerant of homosexuality. Yeah, notoriously, <laughs> notoriously. Yeah, that's right. No, because you see, because Hitler didn't happen because because Hitler was bad. Hitler was didn't happen uh, happen because the moral guardians at the time were not vigilant enough to keep him out. And 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 Lyle Shelton is obviously putting himself in there. He's very good at projection, I've got to say. A lot of these people are. Corey, Corey Bernardi is also very good at projection because he spends a lot of time projecting his thoughts onto the acts of, of, um, of homosexual people in, in, the, uh, in the privacy of their own homes. Um, but anyway, Lyle... That was uh, very uh, diplomatically put, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Lyle is projecting himself, I think, into the, into the role of the kind of moral guardian that we need to stop, to stop all this nasty stuff going on and people goddamn being themselves in, um, in, <laughs> in life. So anyway, I think he's um, is, is an appalling human being. I tried to re- I tried to reason with him on Twitter this week. Of course, I didn't get anything back, you know. <laughs> like, and and as somebody else told me that 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 I was you know giving him too much credit, um, you know credit credit to his motives in attempting to be reasonable to him. I, I answered that of course only unreasonable people won't listen to reason. So um, anyway, it's over to you, Lyle. You can you can come back at me any time you want to show what a reasonable person you are. I have a few insights on on the matter of of uh, you know LGBTI and things like that, and I'd be happy to talk with you about them. But uh, no, I think he he carries on feeling that he has the job to tell us all who we ought to be, not only just what we do, but who we are. Which is um yeah, I think worthy of a big elephant stamp for Lyle. <laughs> Lyle Shelton, I know you're a big listener to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> So the gauntlet has been thrown down. Uh, I, I will add my elephant stampness to Cathy Wilcox's uh, impassioned speech there. Uh, I think we need to get some uh, rational conversation here. Lyle Shelton, would you like to be on the next episode of this podcast? Happy to have your chat. I think that'd be fun. Well, uh, I also get to uh, issue an elephant stamp. And I would like to uh, issue this week's Elephant Stamp to Chicago's Tribune Publishing, (laughs) one of the greatest publishing empires in the history of the United States of America, who this week decided that they would rebrand. They are no longer Tribune Publishing. They are Tronk. (laughs) T-R-O-N-C. And they're going to focus on... Con- uh, what was it? Con- content curation and monetization. That's working well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, look, that, that, <laughs> that's, that's right. worked so well for everyone else around the world. And yeah. I, I imagine this because, you know, oh, you're a journalist, yeah, where do you work? And in 1847, you know, you say, oh, the Chicago Tribune. And they go, oh, wow, that's one of the great newspapers of America. You go, no, you say, oh, where do you work? Tronk. Well, it could be worse. You could say I work at the Daily Telegraph. I mean, it's like, I, I think it's just a name, isn't it? It's like, it's like Stan. Like Stan, when that launched as a streaming service, we all thought that was a ridiculous name. But no, it's just, it, just, it just seems natural to say Stan. I like Tronk. I'm going with Tronk. You, uh, tr- you, oh, you, yeah, okay. I'm on board, I'm on board <laughs> with Tronk. <laughs> what happens when Tronk reports on Trump? You go, Tronk, Trump, Tronk, Trump, Trump, Trump. I mean, it, it's silly. <laughs> it's also very elephantine. So, so Julie, you, you're reporting. Um, you're you're putting this one up for your elephant stamp because trunk is is an elephant's um, trunk in French, and and in Middle English or Old English, out of French too. A trunk is the the container that people in a restaurant throw their tips in and divvy it up at the end of the night. That's possibly more got more to do with the new news. Um, uh, environment now that that's what we basically are doing we're putting our stuff out there online or wherever it is for people to read and hoping to god that someone will throw some money back at us so Margot, would be... you work for a masthead called tronk well i was very taken with tronk because it's a lowercase t but then oh. a capital i <laughs> so i thought that signified something to hipsters <laughs> So it's a, a deconstructed mask here. And it's going to completely I'm, confound I'm, your autocorrect as well. I'm really unhappy with how this whole podcast is going now. I, I thought it got off to a good start and we've reached this point and it's dreadful. I think we should move on. Thank you, Margot. Thank you, Mark Humphrey. Just trying to have healthy debate still. There's healthy debate. Someone brought out a deconstructed <laughs> coffee for me. There is nothing healthy about this. And you haven't drunk it yet. No, it's gone well, cold. I, I, 
I this didn't want a science experiment. This is what worries me with the deconstructed coffees: is that how do you keep all of this stuff warm? I mean, that's that's gone cold. Well, I assume gonna... that what happens is is that a hipster keeps it warm in their armpit or wraps it in their beard. I really didn't want to go there. In which case, we'll go to Donald Trump. Um, now, regular listeners to this podcast will know that over recent months I've just been telling people quietly to, you know, get used to saying it, President Trump rolls off the tongue. Oh, OK. We might get going. Look, I, I don't necessarily approve of it either, but I think we need to accept the inevitable is going to happen. There was a Gallup poll this week. The question was... Uh, who is the preferred presidential candidate for handling the co- economy of the United States of America? Clinton, 43%. Trump, 53%. Who would like to uh, deny that Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States of America? <laughs> Not me. I think this is Armageddon and it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah he's, let, he's, let them burn, yeah. He's, he's bad-tempered and we'll have the news. Well, you know, we had to we had to go through Clive Palmer to understand Clive Palmer, and I think in a similar way we're going to have to we we have to actually experience Trump. Um, or we don't. We know we can see, but in America, they're going to have to actually, you know, it's going to have Trump is going to have to pass through their digestive tract. Like coffee through a civet for them to recognise the, the pile of shit that is Trump. There you go. Yeah, it'll be, I think a lot of knots from the panel yeah. here. Yeah, it'll be like a reboot. Like, you know, it's like they'll have to pull the plug out of American democracy, plug it back, you know, wait 10 seconds, plug it back in. That's what I think, that's the Trump effect that I'm sort of hoping that I don't want Trump, obviously. Oh, I think but, it'd be wonderful. <laughs> Can you just imagine a world with Trump running it? He would try to actually build the wall to stop the Mexicans coming in. He'd try to go, like, get the Mexicans to pay for that. I don't think he'd even Does try. Does he even know where Mexico is? But I don't even think he cares about, you know, keeping promises or anything. So I don't even think that once he was elected he would even bother with the wall thing. I don't think that's important to him. There was an important um, little uh, academic paper, and I'll put a link on the, the podcast website, but it basically pointed out the difference between a liar and a bullshitter. In that a liar actually knows what the truth is and is lying to further some specific aim. A bullshitter is beyond truth and falsehood. Mm. A bullshitter just says whatever yep. is needed in that moment. And Trump is a bullshitter. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, people talk about how long our election campaign is. But I mean, it's taken them the best part of a year just to choose two candidates, and they haven't really even done that. And so we've still got, what, five more months until the actual damn thing. I mean, when people talk about, like, the plebiscite as well and how divisive that is likely to be, I mean, how divisive is it to have... Let's say Trump loses. But I mean, how divisive is it to have a personality like Trump wreaking havoc, havoc for the best part of a year? That whole system just needs to go out the window. Margot, what do you think is happening inside Donald Trump's head? <laughs> a series of hand jobs. You should see the grimace on this woman's face right now. It's just, you're just taking me back to my Year 12 science excursion to the Toowoomba Abattoir. When, when we got to go inside the room where they put all the guts... I don't, look, I read a great piece a few weeks ago, I think it was on politico.com, and it was from a sort of moderate Republican, evidently they still exist, and he was saying, <laughs> we actually need Trump, as you say, we need, we need Trump to pass through the system because it will be so appalling, the Republican Party will be able to just blow up and we can start again basically and we can actually get rid of the tea party so we can get rid of the Koch brothers and we can get rid of all those crazy people and we can actually go back to formulating a real party again and I thought that sounded quite sensible. I think uh, we need to take a short break and consider the implications of Donald Trump. Uh, (laughs) We will be back in a moment with another of our regular segments. And now it's time for Nicholas Fryer to take a look through the arch window. I've been thinking about the election campaign. Not willingly, obviously. But I reckon there might be something we can do about it. 
I mean, it would be nice, I think, that it would improve, that the endless stream of posturing, name-calling, lies, Richard Miles, et bloody cetera, will somehow be transformed into an adult discussion in which serious policy ideas are proposed relevant to the needs and challenges faced by the country. But pigs are still resolutely earthbound, and Scarlett Johansson hasn't returned my calls either, so I guess we're stuck with reality. So the next best thing is to have the entire thing banned on the grounds that it's either contemptuous or obscene. I guess we'd have to make an application in court on behalf of the entire population of the country, which would present its own challenges. Just getting everyone signed up would be a major logistical exercise, involving an army of junior lawyers taking depositions, emptying buckets and retrieving spat dummies. Fortunately, junior lawyers tend to have pretty well-developed skills in those areas as a result of their time spent working with senior lawyers. Legally speaking, though, contempt is probably the harder row to hoe. There isn't, as far as I'm aware, an offence of contempt of the entire country, but you could have a crack on constitutional grounds. Australia is supposed to be a democracy, with a system of government based on the political philosophy first developed by the Greeks, in which affairs of state were decided by self-selected groups of rich men with a taste for sexual exploitation of boys. These days, of course, it would be unthinkable to be so sexist as to restrict that aspect of the matter just to boys, but the basic principles still apply. The people are supposed to have some say in the running of things, which must place some constraints on the acceptable behaviour of the political class, none of which are apparent from a glance at the evening news. But if we can't get a judge to discover an implied constitutional right not to be treated as complete patsies, we'll have to fall back on obscenity. We're on stronger ground here, obviously, as demonstrating the capacity of the campaign to deprave and corrupt is going to be a lay-down misere. I've had a crack at drafting my own affidavit in support last night, and when I read it back this morning I was quite pleased with it. The first several pages set out various grumbles against the behaviour of politicians generally, followed by 50 or so of specific complaints about particular parliamentarians. I spent the next couple of dozen pages on suggested treatment to be meted out to some of the choicer specimens, and from my reading back, I deduced that A, I should never, ever be left alone with David Lionhelm and any sort of power tool whatsoever, and B, the Minister for Immigration has the power to inspire passion in others of which he may not be aware. See also A. I might need to have another go at the last dozen paragraphs, however, because they currently consist of an attempted onomatopoeic rendering of an extended howl of primal anguish, followed by several minutes of dry retching. I might annex to the affidavit a couple of pictures drawn by my kids after being exposed to various federal parliamentarians. I've got one by my six-year-old that shows the Minister for the Environment, I think, doing something to the earth with a prominent part of his anatomy. It's not entirely clear what the Minister, or Bat, is doing, but given the age of the artist, I'm choosing to interpret it as an attempt to determine whether the planet is cooked all the way through. I know the whole Farago is not just affecting my family either. I saw on the internet a report by a clinical neurologist who managed to get functional MRI images of Laura Tingle's brain during the leaders' debate and was able to interpret her mental state in real time. According to this boffin, she started off playing close attention to the speakers and was engaged and interested. But only two minutes after the kick-off, she was thinking principally about ironing and the need to have her cat wormed. Within five minutes... Her defence mechanisms had apparently cut in because the next period consisted largely of what we were assured were perfectly normal fantasies, largely on the subjects of sex and cake, and in one brief but active period, sex with a cake, but shortly thereafter the first signs of complete mental decoherence set in. For the remainder of the evening, the only cogent thoughts she was apparently capable of forming consisted of images of each of the debaters in turn being placed in a lawnmower. If a centrepiece of the campaign can have that effect on a seasoned political journalist, the effect on the rest of us must be truly alarming. I did wonder what the expert might have learned had he managed to apply his magic device to the debaters themselves, and apparently he did, but no signal was received. Well, nothing from Mr Turnbull, who was, in the prof's opinion, technically dead. He did pick up a slight signal coming from the head of Mr Shorten, along with a faint squeaking noise. When pressed, he said he thought it was caused by a hamster wheel. I should make it clear, I'm not advocating the cancellation of the election, nor do I want to prevent the parties competing for votes. 
It's just that I can think of a number of alternatives, all improvements on the current horror. We might, for example, replace the entire degrading spectacle with a game of tiddlywinks, or a swimsuit parade, or, and this has substantial support in some sectors of myself, a death match with chainsaws. I would not even object to an actual literal pissing contest. I merely object to being required to lie down in front of the candidates as they conduct it. In short, the entire federal election campaign is an obscene parade of mendacity and mediocrity, and we'd all be better off if we could just be rid of it all so we can get back to thinking about the terrible parts of our lives that are actually our own fault. In the meantime, I'm going back to my self-imposed media blackout. See you on the 3rd. Welcome back to the Hurstville Ritz Hotel, where, you know what this is, it says on your bloody MP3 kind of podcast software what this is, I don't have to tell you, this is the last but extensive and very important segment where we will chat more about the federal election. How is everyone coping so far? I'm going to start with you again, Mark, because... I did watch your rather wonderful segment on the Great Barrier Reef this week. Well Thank done. you. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I'm loving it. I mean, uh, really, uh, election time is, is, is Christmas for satirists and cartoonists. And, yeah, no, I think it's just, just wonderful. I think eight weeks is not long enough. So well, we're halfway through it now. What have been your highlights? Uh, I'm going to give it... At the moment, I'm going to go with David Feeney, just for having the world's worst day, week, month. David Feeney is the Labour candidate who can't remember that he bought a 2.3 million dollar house. Yeah, so I thought that was I thought that was okay. I thought that was a high point. It was then what happened afterwards. It was then him going on David Spears, which I think we've established by now is a mistake for any politician to go on David Spears after Brandis's metadata disaster, after Pines, uh, I'm a fixer, after Bill Shorten's, uh, I don't know what it is that she said, but I agree with whatever it is that she said. Uh, so Feeney goes on there. Spears, you know, he's, 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 he sees the next, the, he sees the next Walkley coming, and uh, and asks him about the uh, school kids bonus. Feeney says, the the baby bonus, and so. You know, doesn't seem to know the difference between school kids and babies. Very easy to mistake, I'm sure. Uh, and then, after that disaster, then leaves the studio and leaves behind Labour's talking points on a sofa, which is then picked up by the Daily Telegraph. Uh, so, yeah, that is that whole Feeney chapter. Now, I will say that I saw uh, Crikey's political editor, Bernard Keane, say... Well, so what if the, the talking points are left on a sofa? These are things which you wanted to make public anyway. Yes, I think but there was one... Yeah. Y- yes, can you remember no, what it was? Uh, no, I can't remember now. You'll have to... This was me. the one where... How should you respond if it's pointed out to you that some of Labor's election leaflets were printed in Bangladesh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And that particular issue had not been public knowledge until that point. That's, that's the one. So, look, look, ten points to Labor for actually realising they'd done something incredibly embarrassing and having an answer ready, but, like, zero points for leaving it on the couch. What was the answer? I don't know that anyone actually ran with the answer, did they? I mean, surely someone's put this entire document on the interwebs. I've not seen it. I'd love to. <laughs> if uh, we do discover that it's uh, a whole thing... We will uh, put it up on the internet uh, for you, and uh, you can uh, work from there. Should we go across the panel? Should we go Kathy next? Oh, if you like, if you like. What can I say about the election this year? It's it's actually. Well, I don't know. What can it's, you say it's, about um, the elections? It's it's fairly moderate versus fairly moderate. In the end, I'm actually thinking that because we haven't got the the crazy wild card factor. That of you know the the, the, the screaming slogans. I mean, there, there's a great deal de- de- deal of disappointment with this election because because there was sort of a certain amount of hope that the discourse might change. I mean, when we do hope, we are do hoping against all experience, of course, and uh, and and so we're just a little bit older and wiser now. And in our age and wisdom, I have a feeling that we're started to turn a corner. And we're not being quite as susceptible to the um, to the scare campaigns. So, if anything, although it's a deemed a dull campaign and everybody's falling asleep over it, I'm actually enjoying the fact that that when you know Turnbull or 
Scott Morrison can say, Labor's declared war. War on small businesses, I tell you, and the first casualties are going to be blah, blah, blah. And um, he did say that on the day that 33 bodies of Australian yes, servicemen and their right. families were brought Don't back from Vietnam. Don't talk about the war, sir. <laughs> you know, um, I think the fact that, that, th- that those sort of slogans now are coming out from the man who said he was not going to be using slogans and not going to be doing that kind of dirty politics, but also the fact that Labor's going, oh, yeah, he said that. So... They're not even they're not even biting, and I think that I'm hoping that the fact of them not biting is also going to spread to to general pop- populace, and the people are not going to be biting so much at that too. Paul Warbank. Well, I was overseas for quite some time, and I was saying I really don't want to come back for the election, and everyone was saying, "But you're in America." Um, I found the American thing was far more interesting. But I'll turn to Cathy's point here, because I think there's an interesting thing with this, that at least what's... And I'm going to get wonky on you here. I'm going to get serious. Oh, wonk um, on. The, um, that I think <laughs> in America... <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, it's, um, um, the, um, that in America, at least, what's happening with Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump is a realisation that things aren't going quite right in the economy. Whereas here, I think the establishment, particularly on the Liberal Party side of things, is that, mate, everything's good. Property prices are going up, mate, it's all good. And that's part of the disconnect here. One of the reasons why the population and the electorate have tuned out is that um, these people are operating on a different plane to what the ordinary person is doing, whereas the Trumps and the Sanders of the world have tied into this real angst about the economic prospects of the average American. Whether they're right or wrong is another question. But um, that's something that's just not happening here in Australia. Maybe that's us in the media are just as responsible for that in not reporting it. Anyway, I'll take my serious wonky hat off and uh, flick to Margot there. I, I think it's a kind of a contest of expectations, an election. And, and I think that... People came in with very high expectations about Malcolm Turnbull and they're dropping like stone. And people have come in with very, very low expectations about Bill Shorten and they're kind of like, he's not so bad. So I'm, I'm waiting in this kind of, you know, you know, this Buddhist philosophy that your greatest source of unhappiness is the gap between, you know, what you want and what actually happens. You know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for that to be expressed on July 2. Yep, I'm waiting for them to meet in the middle. With you, and I, and I do have a beautiful sort of image of, of Shorten just kind of waddling along there. Waddling? Waddling <laughs> in, the, in the hurdles race while all these yes. ambitious people yes. have stumbled on the hurdles bef- you know, beside him. He could him. be the Stephen Bradbury could, of Australian politics. Oh, yes. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. He's, he's going to do a Bradbury. Yeah. And, you know, he could even do it in the style of that weird dance he was filmed doing when he was on one of the Pacific Islands. He could just dance over the line there like a nong with a funny hat on, yes, but we'd go, yes. well, look what we've got. Because, yeah. yeah, because he's, he essentially has not, has not come with the, with the huge burden of expectation. He's come with the very opposite of it. Yes, yes. Uh, I was going to ask at this point, what's the silliest thing in the election so far? I think that's it. I, the idea that Shorten will Bradbury the thing in is Bradbury a verb? It is now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. To Bradbury, it's a fine Australian verb. So I'm, I'm really just going to run down the panel from Margot through thirty seconds each. Uh, is politics broken, and if so, how can we fix it? No, politics isn't broken because we're not America. And I think the compulsory voting has made sure that the votes are always going to be in the middle. And um, so, no, politics is not broken. Paul Warbeck. Politics is broken. Too many apparatchiks. Okay, and for your remaining 27 seconds? Um, let's... Um, <laughs> Just put, go tronk, 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 tronk. Tronk, tronk, tronk. Put the sitting member last. Kathy oh. Wilcox. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, it, politics is, it can seem to be broken and especially because of the fragmentation of social media uh, and everybody having an opinion. However, I, 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 I relish the fact, I glory in the fact that we are still in the Westminster system and not in the presidential system and that we'll probably be on to our third Prime Minister by the time America figures out who it wants as a, as a permanent, um, president. That is sad but true. And Mark Humphreys. Well, I think it's broken in the sense that political engagement is so low 
And I think really, I think we, everyone in this room and anyone listening, I think we are we are the minority. And we're in an echo chamber on Twitter where we think that Ozpol is trending, but it's it's trending within a very small group. I think the vast majority of people don't care. So my solution is that a country like France, and Kathy and I were talking about France before, uh, has very high political engagement. And my belief is that that comes from uh, the way that they value philosophy, and that philosophy is a compulsory subject this for final... This is the longest 30 seconds I've heard in a long time. But what a great 30 seconds, oh, still. Because it's got real solutions, you know? And uh, so uh, philosophy is compulsory for final year students in France, where they learn to value ideas. And that's, uh, I think that's what politics is about, which should be a debate uh, 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 about ideas. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's my solution. Thank you. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, that is a wonderful and positive note to end on. Will you please thank our panel, Mark Humphreys, Kathy Wilcox, Paul... Applaud, you bastards! Mark Humphreys, Kathy Wilcox, Paul Warbeck and Margot Saville. This has been the 9pm Edicts Public House Forum number three. That's all the edict for now. As I said earlier, the next episode will be on Tuesday, the 21st of June. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Have a good one. The 9pm edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.